Michael picked some perfect songs for uh, what I'm going to be speaking on tonight. Uh, basically, we're going to continue, and I know Lonnie told you it was a wrap-up last week of Unsung Heroes, but I'm going to go one more week on Unsung Heroes, and I want to touch on one of David's mighty men, and that is uh, Benaiah. And I want to go through his life, and his life is, just as all the songs in worship were today, about just a life of complete brokenness and surrender, and allowing that God to use that to bring redemption and glory to God, not necessarily to Benaiah himself, but to God ultimately. And I thought I brought my water up, and now I can't find it. But because it's sitting right there. Thanks, babe. Um, So anyway, we'll just do a quick recap. Um, You know, the first of the unsung heroes was David. Started off his life as the forgotten son. Um, You know, the prophet Samuel came to bless the next king of Israel, and David's dad brings all of his sons in to be blessed, thinking one of these sons has to be the one who is the next king. And Samuel walks through all of them and says, no, it's not any of these guys. Do you have another son? Oh, yeah, I forgot about my youngest, David. Let me go get him. So, I mean, obviously, unsung hero, he was forgotten. And as you read through the Psalms, which David wrote most of them, you can kind of see this guy was definitely, you know, if you look at the Psalms, you read through it, if it wasn't in the Bible and it was just a separate book, you would not think that this guy was a hero in the Bible, that this guy was what Israel basically set their nation on as, this is our king, this is our guy. I mean, you read through the Psalms, this guy was bipolar. He would have been put on Xanax in the 21st century. I mean, you just read through it. It's crazy. Every time I read the Psalms, I'm like, good Lord, this guy was a mess. One chapter, God, you're great. You're my shield. You're my rock. You, you defend me. You make all my enemies lie before my feet. And then the next chapter is, Lord, you've forgotten me. I'm so depressed. Please help me. Life is terrible. And it's like, come on, man, get it together. Either he's good or he's not. But aren't we all like that? Every day, it's just a struggle to, to keep going to depend on God. So next was Paul. He was, today would be known as an ISIS terrorist, killing Christians, murdering the church, just trying to do anything to break it apart. And then all of a sudden, Jesus just stops him in his tracks and says, hey, come with me. Let me show you what I'm doing. Let me show you what I'm doing with my church. And he flips the world upside down. One man going after the church. We would have disqualified him today just because he was an ISIS terrorist, murdering Christians on a daily basis. But he ends up changing everything. Jacob had too many labels. He was a cheater. He was a liar. Next thing you know, God breaks his hip and changes his name, and he becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Then Joseph, the dream is too big. Very cocky and arrogant little kid telling his brothers, one day you're all going to bow before me. So they sell him off into slavery. Next thing you know, he's the governor of Egypt, the richest nation in the world, and he saves his family. Then Gideon, too small, not qualified to lead an army for God's nation against one of the biggest foes that they've ever had. From the weakest tribe, one of the smallest tribes, and yet God uses him to defeat a great army. Then the the prodigal son's dad who failed his son, but yet receives his son back with open arms saying, come back to me. Come back. Let me restore you as a son. Let me give you back your inheritance, give you back your authority. Rahab, I'm a prostitute. Had nothing. Was sitting there 
Basically, that was her daily life, was being a prostitute. It was the only way she could provide, the only way that she could, she could eat on a daily basis. But then she comes in contact with the Israelites. And as Rhiannon said during that time where she was teaching us on Rahab, she didn't wave the white flag of surrender, but she clung to the scarlet cord of covenant. And last but not least, we have David's mighty men. A complete mess. Clinical nightmare. The, these guys would have been in psychologist's office on a daily basis, constantly going, distressed, in debt, depressed, just an absolute mess of people. Excuse me. And God uses them to completely change the nation, the nation of Israel, bring it back to the glory that, that he meant for it to be. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight is in David's mighty men, specifically with Benaiah. So David's mighty men in 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2, it reads, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And they were with him about 400 men. So here David's leading 400 men, all of them distressed, in debt, bitter in soul, depressed. Just a, Today we would have just said these are a bunch of worthless guys that God could never use. Probably guys that couldn't get a job. Most of them were in slavery to pay off their debt. And they ran probably from their masters to David for salvation. Basically saying, save me, we'll run with you. All the while we've got David who's leading them, who we just talked about who's bipolar. He's running in caves from Saul, the king of Israel, who's trying to kill him. And it's like the blind leading the blind here. We just got a bunch of depressed people gathering in caves, jumping from cave to cave, running from King Saul, trying not to die. And in the middle of it, enters Benaiah. That is a great picture of Benaiah. And what we know of him now, if we read the few verses about him in the Bible, there's very few. This is what we know about him. We know that he was a lion killer. We know that you know, he was the, the head of David's guard. We know he was a valiant warrior. But who else was he? What was he before that? How did he get to that point? So the most famous verse about Benaiah is 2 Samuel 23.20. There was also Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kebzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. Once armed with a club, he killed an imposing Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Deeds like this made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was more honored than the other members of the 30, though he was not one of the three and David made him captain of his bodyguard. So if we just read this, this is the first verse where Benaiah is mentioned in the Bible. If we just read this, all we see is the great feats of Benaiah. But we don't see what it took to get there. We don't see what he had to go through and the struggle that it took for him to get there and the sacrifice that it took. All we know is this guy was at the pillar of warriors. He was the best of the best. That's all we know. And at this time, after David was, was uh, crowned king of Israel, Benaiah, being the head of his guard, would have been one of the wealthiest men in the world. David, being, one, being probably the wealthiest man in the world at that time, would have made sure that Benaiah and his men were all taken care of. So Benaiah would have been a very wealthy man at this point. But again, 
What did it take to get to this point? A legend by any man's standards. But was he really? So let's look at Benaiah's name. And when we look at his name, we can kind of get a grasp on, on what was happening with Benaiah from his past going up until now. As you guys know, I love the Hebrew language. I love you know, um, the spelling of it, the meaning behind it. Every letter has a meaning and a picture. So every word is kind of like a, a comic strip, if you will. And then every sentence is almost like a movie played out or a scene in a movie. So you can really just walk through Hebrew language and just get such a beautiful picture of the scripture. So Benaiah's name would have been spelled bet nun yod vav The first part of his name is Benah which derived from the word build up, built up of, rebuild, or had built. The second part of his name was Yah, or Yahweh, the Lord God. Yah was the, the first part of the word Yahweh, which the ending and spelling of his name was yod vav to spell yod excuse me, Yahweh was yod vav So it's just missing that last letter for the word God or Yahweh in his name. So what we have from that, the spelling of Benaiah's name is the Lord is built up. Some of you might recognize this name Benaiah because it's said a lot around this church because my son's name is Benaniah and we got it from this name. The only difference is we added the A-N, all it does is change it to a present tense name. So this being past tense, the Lord has built, Benaniah's name means the Lord is building. And we took that from this name specifically because of the mighty feats that Benaiah had, because of the man that he was. Unfortunately for Benaniah, I hope this doesn't happen to him, but I didn't know Benaiah's past before we named him. <laughs> so now we get into to Benaiah's past, and let's look at his story of who he was. First of all, Benaiah, completely broken and broke. He was the son of a priest. He was of the tribe of Levi. So Benaiah, by any means, should have grown up to become a priest because he was from the line of Levi. His father was a priest. He would have born into that, and he would have gone into priesthood. But he chose to go a different route. He chose not to be a priest, but he chose to be a warrior instead. Some accounts that you read will say that Benaiah's uh, grandfather was a valiant warrior as well. And Benaiah's grandfather and dad taught him how to use the club that he killed the Egyptian with and how to use it as one of his main uh, weapons as opposed to a sword. And some of the books that I've read on Benaiah, um, you know, he's, he's quoted in there saying that he prefers his club over the sword. And that was his, his main weapon that he loved to use. He always had it with him, never left him. So he chose a different path, chose to be a warrior. He was from the city of Kebzeel. In the city of Kabzeel, there really wasn't much economy there. Basically, your choices to make money was either to be a priest, to be a shepherd, or to be a farmer. And he said, I'm not going to do any of those. I'm going to be a warrior. So you can imagine how probably struggled financially. That's like coming to Colorado Springs and saying, I'm going to sell boats. Probably not the best thing to sell in Colorado Springs because there's not a whole lot of water around here. It's just not a good thing to get into. It's not a good decision. Maybe you're the best boat salesman in the world, but if you put yourself in Colorado Springs to sell boats, you're probably going to go broke. So that's essentially what happened to Benaiah is he was struggling financially to, to provide for his family. Um, he had a wife, and at this time he had three daughters. 
So he ends up going to Egypt as a mercenary. And this is where kind of his story of brokenness begins. He leaves his family, three daughters, one wife, and he goes to Egypt because at the time Egypt was a very wealthy nation and they were paying warriors to come in as mercenaries to fight for Pharaoh. So he ends up going down to Egypt to chase a dream. One of the books that I read, it, it actually says that, um, you know, Benaiah and Shariza, his wife, are having a conversation. She's like, why do you have to go? And he says, when I come back, we're going to be the richest people in Kebzeel. Everyone's going to come to us for money, for loans. We're going to be able to provide for our entire city. So he's chasing this dream, chasing money, saying he's going to have more gold than you've ever seen in your life, trying to provide for his wife and his family, trying to chase this dream of riches, of fame, of fortune. He ends up going down to Egypt. He becomes a mercenary, goes through some painstaking trials to even become a mercenary. What Pharaoh would do to, to the mercenaries, the trials that he would put them through, most of them would die before they be, even became a mercenary. So it was like, basically, once you chose to become a mercenary in Egypt, either you pass all the tests or you die before you become a mercenary and you even get paid. And you don't get paid unless you fulfill your full term with Pharaoh. So here's Benaiah, goes to Egypt, becomes famous among the Egyptians even though they hate Hebrews, completely prejudiced against Hebrews because of what happened with Moses taking the people away from Pharaoh back then. Still this, this deep-rooted racism against Hebrews. They all hate him, but he becomes a very valiant warrior, becomes very famous among, among the Egyptians. And while he's there, He's missing his family so much, missing his wife, missing his kids. His mind is no longer in the wars and in the battles that Pharaoh's sending him on. So he goes to Pharaoh and asks him if he can be dismissed and sent back to his family. Pharaoh says, yeah, sure, you can do that. But you've got to beat my best warrior to get out of here. One-on-one, -on -one, you guys got to fight. And you're getting nothing if you get away. All I'm doing is letting you go. You get no money, you get nothing. So he ends up fighting the Egyptians' best warrior. He ends up losing to him. And he doesn't die because right before the Egyptian giant is ready to kill him, Pharaoh stops the fight and says, let him go. He served his service. We're not going to pay him a dime. Get out of here. He ends up going back to Kebzeel where his family is to find that Amalekites have completely pillaged the town. All three of his daughters have been killed and his wife was raped by the Amalekites. And this is where we find Benaiah now, completely distressed, completely broken. His children have been killed by foreigners, and his wife was ravaged, and now she's just a mess. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine coming back to that after being gone for two years, or however many years it was. And he comes back after his wife told him not to go. And he comes back to that without a single dime, without a penny to his name to provide for his family. All because he was chasing a dream. First lesson we can learn here is men, listen to your wives. <laughs> the Holy Spirit very often will speak through our wives as much as we don't want to admit it. He does very, very often. Listen to your wives. But he's chasing this dream and he comes back broken and depressed. All of his plans are completely gone. And at that point, that's where we find Benaiah meeting with David. He goes to the cave of Adullam, where David's running from King Saul. 
trying to get free, trying to, to just stay alive. Anointed the king of Egypt, but running from cave to cave, sleeping in mud, you know, sleeping with, with bugs and the whole bit. And Benaiah comes to him depressed, stressed out, broken, broke. And what's the first thing David does? He says, go hunt a lion. Can you imagine that conversation? Here comes Benaiah, comes to a cave where there's a bunch of distressed, depressed people, and he thinks, okay, somebody here is taking care of these people. Who is it? David. David, I'm depressed, man, and I'm broke. I got nothing. My home was taken from me. David goes, oh, great. Hey, by the way, there's this lion ravaging this village down the mountain. Can you go hunt the lion for me? Huh? Can't you see that I'm like a mess? And you want me to hunt a lion? Yeah, yeah. If you could do that for me, just go take care of that, okay? So David sends him to a village to hunt a lion. And this is where we catch him in the Bible where it says that he um, hunted a lion, chased it down into a pit, and killed it on a snowy day. Um, history, or legend has it, I guess you could say, from the books that I've read on him, is that this lion was ravaging a village and it was killing people in the village and it kept coming back at night and taking the food and tormenting the people. And David, to gain favor with the city, sends Benaiah there to hunt the lion to kill it so that it will no longer ravage the city and torture the city. He ends up finding the lion, he ends up killing it. So, here we have Benaiah completely broken, completely depressed, becoming one of these not-so-mighty men, as Pastor would say it before, sitting with David in a cave, just wondering what the heck's going on. Here he had all of these plans for his life, and they've all come to nothing. They've all come to, to just send him basically for broke. They've brought him no fame. They've brought him no fortune. All of his plans for his family are completely squashed. He's got no inheritance to leave and no kids to leave it to now. And he's just depressed and doesn't know what to do. How often do we do, we do this in our own lives? Where we have these mighty plans and we think this is exactly how life is going to go. And God goes, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and he kicks it over. And what do we do with that? How do we handle that? How, how, do we, how do we work with that? I mean, do we just give up? I know this similar thing happened to me um, when I was in eighth grade. It was about the time that the school I was going to would start talking to you and start kind of like grooming you of what college do you want to, or what do you want to major in in college? What do you want to be when you grow up? Kind of that, that kind of stuff. And my plan from eighth grade was I'm going to be a high school math teacher and I'm going to coach soccer and baseball. I'm going to come back to my hometown of Hobart, Indiana and I'm going to coach algebra, and I'm going to lead the soccer team to a state title. That was, that was my plans. I had it all mapped out. I mean, you could ask anybody that knew me at that time. I knew exactly what I was going to do. There was no questioning it. And from eighth grade until my sophomore year of college, there was nobody that could deter me from that plan. That was my plan in life, was exactly that. And nobody could tell me any different. So I go to college, and God begins to kick over my cans. All these cans of dreams and 
canisters of hopes and things like that, God just one by one begins to kick over. Oh, you want to go to college and become a, uh, a math teacher? Here, have fun with Calculus 2 at 8 a.m. in your freshman year, your first semester. Yeah, let's kick that can over. <laughs> oh, oh, you want to be a baseball teacher? You want to be a mentor to little kids? Here, how's depression? How does that work out? How does depression work into the life of a full-time student? Oh, oh, yeah, you, you want to be you know, a great guy in the, in the city of Hobart? Okay, how's addiction? How does, that, how does that roll into that? Here, addiction, let's just roll that one right in there. Now, I'm not saying that God did these things to me necessarily. Did he allow it? Maybe. Probably. He's in control. He knows exactly what's going on. And I'm not going to sit here and say that, that I'm, I regret any of that either because it made me who I am today. But I had all these plans for my life of what to do and all these little things, depression, hitting the books. I mean, I, I was a straight-A student in high school and here in college I was struggling to hold a C, a C average. I mean, I, just, I would look at a book and my, my mind would just go absolutely blank. I mean, among that, when you're trying to study while you're de just ridiculously depressed, it's very, very difficult. <laughs> Nothing registers. And, I mean, I just went completely blank. And here I am, someone who never had homework. I never had to really do my homework so I could finish it all in class. I never had to study, and I still got straight A's. And here I am in college. I'm working my tail off, and I can't seem to get it. I can't pass. And God's just throwing all these things saying, you know, you had great plans for your life, but it's not necessarily the plans that I had for you. So in the book, The Hall of Mighty Men, um, Cliff Graham wrote a series of books called The Hall of Mighty Men, and it's all about the, the mighty men that were following David. And the one that specifically is on Benaiah, um, the... Cliff Graham is kind of narrating this as an author for Solomon, writing of all the great feats of the mighty men, to tell King Solomon of all of their, their greatest feats and everything that they've done. And Benaiah tells the man who's writing him down, he says, Tell the king first of my mistakes. My later deeds are known, but they are not what brought me to my knees before Yahweh. What a powerful, powerful quote right there. I mean, when I read this, I had to stop. I'm reading it, and I literally, I just stopped. I put the book down. I think I posted it on Facebook. And then I just sat there and thought about it. Because it's such a powerful statement. Because do our failures allow us to come to our knees before Yahweh, or do we give up with them? I know for me, I had a hard time dealing with fa failure. For someone who basically through my entire life, I mean, I didn't really fail at much, Everything that I did, I succeeded at. And then going to college, I utterly, utterly failed in college, miserably. I mean, for the first time in my life, I was on the JV team of any sport. I got cut from the baseball team, which never happened to me. And I was barely pulling a C average. And for someone who was a four-year starter in varsity in soccer, was an all-star every year in baseball, and got straight A's throughout my entire life, that was utter failure. And that was part of the thing that led me into depression was going through all that, going, what is going on? I can't succeed at anything. Even relationships with friends I couldn't succeed at. It was absolutely miserable. But did I allow that 
to bring me my knees before Yahweh? I struggled. I fought it for a long time. As Gary Black would tell us on Tuesdays when he was leading it, you can either fall on the rock or the rock's going to fall on you. One or the other is going to happen, though. <laughs> so the rock that is Jesus, you can either fall on it and let yourself be broken, or Jesus will drop the rock on you and he will break everything that you think that you are. And that's what happened to me. And for about a good five or six years, I would not drop to my knees and I was so stubborn. And the rock fell on me. Finally, to the point where I just couldn't even stand anymore, I dropped to my knees weeping, saying, what do you want from me? Because I got nothing anymore. So it's all yours. I'm, I'm done. Steph and I will often joke about it, that if we would have met any earlier than we did, she would have never even gave me the time of day. Because she was, I mean, she's a saint, as you all know. She's got no wrong about her. Everything's perfect. And here I am. I'm, I'm a complete mess. I'm an addict, I'm hanging out at the bars, I'm smoking cigarettes, and she wanted nothing to do with any of that, nor did she want a husband that was like that either. So had we met any time before that, she would have never even gave me the time of day. And uh, our, our wedding song is a song by, um, thank you, Rascal Flatts. You may hear about that one later. Um, Rascal Flats, and it's basically the entire song is everything in my life led me to you. And it's kind of just a perfect story of, of our lives, of everything that happened in our past was God breaking us. God stripping us of our past, stripping us of our plans to bring us together to say, here's what I have for you, you two, and I'm going to create the plans from here on out. I'm going to be the one that's going to set you on your way. But we both had to come to a point of brokenness to say, okay, God, what do you want from me? thing about having a one-year-old is you get reacclimated with all of these old Disney movies. So they become a part of your everyday life and you just quote them all the time. But this is just such a great picture, I thought, of, of how we walk through life and especially Benaiah's life. Here he had a past that was deeply, deeply painful, that hurt. He had his inheritance laid out for him as, as a priest. And he denied that inheritance and decided to go a different route. One hurt. He made the wrong choice. He goes to Egypt. Another wrong choice. He comes back to more pain. Another hurt in the past. Another mistake. And he could have easily laid down and died right there. 
But instead, he decided to let that bring him to his knees before Yahweh and say, okay, Lord, whatever you want from me, the past hurt, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn from it. I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to face it, and I'm going to continue moving on. He continues moving on, and now look what he is. Now look who he's become. Now he's this famous person in the Bible. Only a few verses on him, but every verse just sing his praise. But what he had to go through to get there was absolutely painstaking, but it was absolutely necessary. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, the Lord says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We must trust the artist that is painting the mosaic of our life. We must trust it. We can't question it. We can't deny it. And we can't run from it. Because no matter what we do, he's still painting. And he's still going to continue to paint. And all we can do is sit back and say, okay, Lord, whatever your will, let it be. And just continue walking. And one day we're going to look back at this beautiful mosaic that the Lord has painted of our life. We're going to say, wow, all of it was worth it. As painful as it was, as much as it sucked, it was completely and utterly worth it. In one of Richard Rohr's devotionals, he says this, I pray God to rid me of God. Our logical mind would see this as nonsense. There is no concept of God that can contain God. Your present notion of God is never it. As Augustine said, if you comprehend it, it is not God. We can only come to know God as we let go of our ideas about God and as what, and as what is not God is stripped away. This is referring to the second commandment where God tells us you must not make for yourself any idol of any kind or any image of anything. If we make any idol of God, any image that we have of God, because all, all our earthly minds can do is give an earthly image of God, we are doing God a disservice. Because our minds cannot comprehend how big He is, how His plans are, and what He has in store for us. So every time that we begin to get an idea of the plans that God has for us, we are committing adultery because we can't even fathom the plans that He has for us because they are so great. The plans that God has for us will bring Him so much glory and be so good for us. There's no way that we could possibly comprehend it. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, 15 years ago, if I could tell you my life story and how it would be amazing and how it would set me up with a great family and an incredible wife, with incredible friends living in a beautiful city that I absolutely have fallen in love with, I can tell you I would not have said that it went the way that it did. It would have gone so much different in my mind. But I had to die to all of those plans. When we first moved out here, we had plans of building a, a huge mega church with a big band and smoke and laser light shows and the whole bit. Maybe not laser light shows, maybe not smoke, but it's a good picture. But basically, we wanted to build this huge church where we were going to be the talk of the nation as one of the fastest growing churches. 
in Christianity in America. We were going to change the world. And God completely stripped us, of, stripped us of those plans. Dropped a bomb on us one day. Tells Pastor Lonnie in prayer, nah, I don't want you to do that. The uh, organization that we were partnered with, Lonnie had to call them one morning and uh, say, you know, we're not going to partner with you guys anymore. And um, ends up letting us know, I think about a week later or something like that in a team meeting, hey, all of the plans we had, everything that we have just talked about, we're not doing any of it. We're squashing all of it. We're not going to rent an auditorium in a high school and blow it up. We're not going to have this huge children's ministry with this elaborate check-in system and Colin working four Sundays a month <laughs> in the children's ministry. And we're, we're just not going to do that. Instead, we're going to meet in my living room. And we're going to start there. And I can tell you, Michael and I were very, very, very mad. <laughs> because our plans were come out here and within five years, Michael and I were taking the first church plant. And we were going to run it. And that was our dream. And that was our plans. And we were going to become these superstar pastors and worship leaders and the whole bit. And God just completely ripped the rug right out, out from under our feet, dropped us on our tails and said, that's not what I want. That is not what I want at all. Instead, I want something small and I want a nameless and faceless movement where no single person is known, but only the name of Jesus is proclaimed. And it just completely threw Michael and I for a loop. And I think for about two months, we were really, really mad at Pastor. <laughs> but our plans couldn't be God's plans because this idea that we had of the way God was going to orchestrate the church to go was pure idolatry. It was all man-made. It was all this idea of what we wanted it to be and not what God wanted it to be. And how often do we do that with our lives where our plans become our idol of this is how I want my life to go. And as soon as God says no, we pout and we kick our feet and we stomp and we say, no, God, I do not want to do that. We can't question the process, but we can only submit and trust. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in a man's mind, but the Lord's purpose for him, that will stand. All we can do is submit. That's all we can do. And now we come to Benaiah's redemption and what he's known for now. Here after all this misery, after all this pain, after everything that he's gone through, now we know him for the famous man that he is, the man that killed the sons of Ariel of Moab who were considered to be giants, considered to be champions in the world, champions of war. No one could defeat him. And Benaiah kills two of them. Killed an Egyptian Egypt. You guys read the verse. He stole the giant's spear and killed him with his own spear. Some legends say that the Egyptian giant that Benaiah killed is the one that he lost to when Pharaoh said, you need to fight my champion to get out of here. What a story of redemption there. This, the guy that he loses to, to, to get his freedom, he ends up killing later. And they say that this Egyptian giant was a mercenary for the Philistines. He ends up becoming command of David's guard, one of the wealthiest people. He ends up leading a team of mercenaries. David would actually hire mercenaries from other countries to fight with him. And 
Benaiah was in charge of them. Benaiah was the one that was known for making, initiating Solomon as king. When Absalom tried to take over kingship after David died, Benaiah is the one that led the charge to say, no, David's plans was for Solomon to be king, and he will be king. And Benaiah was the one that initiated putting Solomon on the throne. And then Solomon makes him general of the entire army of Israel, which you could imagine the wealth that would have gone along with that at that time. Solomon, the wealthiest, wisest person in the world. Kings and queens were bringing riches to Solomon, laying it at his feet just to get his wisdom. So you could imagine what a general of Solomon's army, how much wealth he had. But I ended up having multiple sons to carry on his name, to give his inheritance to, and for him, his legend to continue to live on. What a story of redemption. From complete and utter brokenness, he had nothing. In today's world, Benaiah would have been a complete failure. He would have been broke. He probably would have been homeless. He would have had nothing. And here's the story. He becomes one of the wealthiest people in the world, one of the most famous people in the Bible. Although only a few verses are written on him, when you actually type in his name in Google, there are sermon after sermon after sermon and blog after blog after blog about Benaiah. We very rarely hear about him, but when you do, you only hear about his glory. You don't hear about his suffering and the sacrifices that it took to get there. So what can we take away from Benaiah's story, from, from his suffering and his sacrifice to his redemption? One, don't let your past define you. Your past is not who you are. It has shaped you into the person that you are now, but it, it is not the person that you are. Do not let your past define you. Let it shape you. Learn from it. Let your failures bring you to your knees, not to your back. Don't give up when you fail. Drop to your knees. Drop before, before God and say, God, what are you doing? You allowed me to fail in some way, shape, or form. You allowed it. So what, what do I need to learn from this? Pastor Lonnie would always tell us, uh, he's been mentoring me for almost 15 years now, and he always would tell me, fail forward. Failure is never actually failure until you give up. Fail forward. When you fail, fail forward, learn from it, move on. Um, most, most of the famous people that we know now, you know, Donald Trump, Robert Kiyosaki, um, I'm not sure about the president, but most, um, oh, who's the CEO of Microsoft? Why am I drawing a blank on that now? Gates, thank you. <laughs> Steve Jobs, all of them. Multiple failures in business. Donald Trump has filed bankruptcy like four times. And here he is, one of the wealthiest men in our nation, has a ton of influence and is running for presidency and is gaining a lot of traction. He never allowed failure in his past to define him, but he always learned from it and moved on. Probably not the greatest example in church, I know. But hey, we can learn from it. Release your plans to God. Let go. It's good to have plans. Don't get me wrong. My wife is having a sigh of relief right now. Of, oh, good. It's good to have plans. <laughs> He's not completely giving up. But we can't be so strict onto our plans that when our plans don't work out, we pout and we give up and we say, God, I'm done with you. We have to allow God 
to shift our plans, to shift our world, to shift our life. Because ultimately, He's the one that has mapped out our lives. He's the one that's painting the picture. All we can do is submit to His process and submit to what He has for us. And finally, as we say at Keystone, embrace the suckage. Life sucks sometimes. It does. Embrace it. Because it all belongs. All the pain, all the suffering, all the, the bad parts of life that we can't control, all of the failures, it all belongs. It's all a part of the process. God doesn't sit up in heaven and think, what happened here? Oh my gosh, Harlan failed. Oh no, the entire kingdom is going to fall apart on itself because Harlan failed. No, he already knew it was going to happen. And he stands there and he goes, okay, Harlan, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to learn from it? Are you going to move forward? Because in God's eyes, it's all just a part of the painting. Everything is beautiful to Him. Our misery, our failure, our sin, the great things we do, the glories that are thrown upon us and to Him, all of it belongs to God. It's all the same. He looks at it all with a smile and says, this is just a part of the process, so just enjoy it. So stand with me. We're going to end a little early tonight. Um, kind of ran through that a little quickly. Here's a couple um, books on Beniah if you want to write these down and read them. The two on the right and the left are by Cliff Graham. I will preface this that they are based on factual events, but they are fictional books. He stresses that a lot in the introduction to the books, but they are absolutely amazing because they're based on factual events and um, things that would have happened in those times during the wars that were going on in Israel. Um, and it's really a great, beautiful story of struggle and what David's mighty men went through before David was actually, excuse me, initiated king. And then Mark Batterson wrote the book, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Um, again, another great book on, on Benaiah and his life and what, what we can grasp from it. So. Oh, Father, we just come to you today, Lord, and we, we release all plans that we have to you. Lord, the plans that, that we have in our lives, the plans that we have made, Lord, we release every single one of them to you. And we say just have your will. Have your will with us. Have your will with Keystone. Have your will with our nation. And do what, do what you want, Lord. And we just submit to the process. Lord, I pray over our church tonight. Lord, I pray for anybody who does have failures in the past that seem to define them. That seem to continually creep up in their mind and creep up in their lives. And are almost holding you in bondage. Lord, I just pray a supernatural release tonight of those things that are holding people in bondage. Let your, allow your heart to be open to God, to the Holy Spirit. Fall to your knees before Him and say, what, what can I learn from it? Because it happened, it's in the past. God allowed it to happen. He knew it was happening. I can tell you right now, he's standing here with open arms saying, jump into my lap. And let me teach you what I'm doing. Let me show you. It's all going to be all right because I'm in control. 
And I've never let go of you. And I'm just walking you through the process. So Lord, I just pray a special grace over anybody who who has that going on in their heart right now. Lord, that you give them the power to release those plans, to release those failures, to release that bondage to you, Father God. And I just pray a peace over everybody that is going through that. Peace to know that God's in control and that God is, is shaping your life exactly how He wants it. And all of it was for a purpose and all of it is for His greater glory and your good. So Lord, I pray blessing over your church that as they go, Lord, that you would bless them coming and going. With all the authority of this house, Father, I bless everybody here as they go out tonight and go out this week, that they would make an impact on your kingdom. Lord, that your joy and your life and your peace, your love, would shine through each of their hearts as they walk throughout the week. In Jesus' name.